Welcome to episode three of Digging into Diabetes. Today we're going to be talking about racial and ethnic disparities in diabetes care. Diabetes disproportionately affects racial and ethnic minority groups in the United States, but that isn't just in terms of prevalence. They also have worse diabetes control, higher rates of complication, and reduced quality of care. Interestingly, type 1 diabetes is particularly prevalent in white populations, more so than black or Hispanic populations. That being said, type 1 diabetes only accounts for 5-10% to of diabetes cases in the United States, according to the CDC. Racial disparities in diabetes prevalence is a particularly visible problem in Chicago. Chicago is known for being one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Whereas 1 in 10 Chicagoans has diabetes, 2 in 10 Southsiders have diabetes. What really strikes me about this is the irony of it. Diabetes is a disease that often preys on the least resourced populations, and at the same time, it's a disease that requires astounding amounts of resources. For example, the price of insulin has, for quite some time, been a topic of debate and frustration, and has become the headline of a larger issue of high drug prices in this country. Diet is also a super important aspect in the management of diabetes. If I walked to the food trucks outside my office right now, I could buy a hot dog for two or three dollars. A salad would cost me about twelve dollars. So most people know the importance of healthy eating, but we don't talk about the challenges that go along with it. The U.S. Department of Agriculture defines a food desert as an area with a poverty rate of at least 20% and where at least a third of the population lives more than a mile from a supermarket or large grocery store. The Food and Empowerment Project in Chicago found that 500,000 Chicagoans live in an area that meets the USDA's criteria to be considered a food desert, and almost all of those people are located on the south or west sides of the city. One important distinction I want to make before we talk to the experts themselves is that, while socioeconomic status certainly plays an enormous role in disparate health outcomes for people with diabetes, racial and socioeconomic disparities are not interchangeable. A study published in BMC Public Health found that both black and Hispanic populations have significantly worse health outcomes compared to white populations even after the variable of socioeconomic status is removed. So with that, I've called upon two experts, Dr. Thomas and Dr. Big, both of whom have done significant work on healthcare disparities, to talk about why this is such a large issue and hear a bit about the work that they do every day to combat it. I think a good place to start is to define what exactly a healthcare disparity is. So I say to Dr. Thomas, Healthcare disparities are a topic that's being talked about more and more, but there also seem to be a lot of misconceptions about what exactly they are, who they affect, why they occur, and what the true impacts of these disparities are on underserved populations. Can you give us a brief definition of healthcare disparities? So I think there are so many definitions of healthcare disparities because um, there are so many ways that we can think about disparities. So, you know, when we think about healthcare disparities, we might talk about the differences in the quality of care received within a healthcare system. So you have the same, the patients with, you know, the same uh, duration of an illness and they're coming into the same healthcare system and getting different care and different quality of the care within the same healthcare system. Another way to think about it is differences in access to care, right? So now we might kind of go outside of the system and think about um, the community or um, the city and do some people have differences in access to care? And that would include, you know, preventative care and and maybe even, you know, for certain things, 
um, curative services, right? So differences in the, the quality of the care you receive once you're in the institution, differences in access to care. And as we, you know, kind of go upstream, that's when we start thinking about um, even differences in, in life opportunities, differences in, in environmental exposures, differences in stresses, and all of these things that also impact, um, you know, the, the incidence of illness and kind of overall underlying health status. And so we see disparities of, you know, I, I imagine that's why we might see um, variations in the definitions because it depends on kind of where we are um, with regard to looking upstream versus you're looking at this one individual in front of you right now and concerned that, um, that compared to, you know, a similar individual, they have, you know, potentially uh, progressed with having complications and, and preventable hospitalizations um, because of disparities in care. One of the ways that Dr. Thomas works to combat these disparities that she describes is through a study that she oversees called Using Technology to Address Disparities and Promote Healthcare Equity in Type 1 Diabetes, also known as Equity 1D. Dr. Thomas, can you explain to us what that is? This um, was driven by an interest in looking at quality. So my work started with understanding um, how to successfully manage diabetes recognizing that that is kind of a group of diseases and that type 1 diabetes is a particular type of, of diabetes in which there's this destruction of these insulin-producing cells and our patients have an absolute need for insulin from outside of their body. And so I was looking at our patients um, who were hospitalized uh, for diabetic ketoacidosis. And we saw that there was this increased incidence of hospitalization and multiple hospitalizations for diabetic ketoacidosis. And so then that had to look at the available technology so that our patients can know what's happening with their glucose levels. And we saw a disparity. So we saw a disparity in the introduction of continuous glucose monitoring technology. There's also a disparity in the introduction of insulin pump technology. And when we look at the data, we see that um, for patients with type 1 diabetes who, are in, who have continuous glucose monitoring technology, um, we see a reduction in hospitalizations for diabetic ketoacidosis. And of course, we see kind of an improvement in average glucose levels, either as measured by um, the hemoglobin A1C or using the, the CGM technology itself in that time and range. And so the idea for, for Equity 1D was to try to promote some equity in the, um, in the use, so in the, in the prescription, but then also the utilization of technology. So, so because there's one thing to have uh, the continuous glucose monitor prescribed, but then there's another thing to actually overcome the barriers associated with prior authorization and actually getting that continuous glucose monitor onto the patient, and then to figure out how to best utilize it. What's going on? Am I having a problem with my phone? Am I having a problem? And with all of the other stressors that some patients may have and all the other demands 
we wanted to try to achieve some equity in that we're going to provide some support. And so we are providing support in the form of a patient navigator in order to help overcome some of those barriers to continuing the continuous glucose monitoring technology. And of course, we also work to get it to get to get it. So we have our pharmacist, our pharmacy team that's helping us. And then we also have um, our patient navigator who's um, um, also a certified diabetes care and education specialist and so can help patients kind of understand what to do, how to interpret, you know, changes in glucose levels, what to do about that low glucose, but then also, you know, what to do about kind of persistently elevated glucose levels, when to check urine ketones, if you are using an insulin pump, what do you do when if that pump fails, and, um, and that's equity T1D. Now that we understand what equity T1D is, I want to hear from Dr. Thomas about what led her to establish this study. So I developed uh, Equity T1D as a, in response to the, um, seeing our patients, many patients being readmitted with diabetic ketoacidosis. So we submitted this to the University of Chicago's Healthcare Delivery Science and Innovations um, grant with the assistance of, of many people, including um, Dr. Dr. Lou Philipson and, and Dr. Monica Peek and others trying to understand how to um, introduce this technology and then uh, study, um, study the outcomes. And so the Cobra Diabetes Center has had a huge role in, in helping us to kind of develop this and then to support um, the work with, with providing that patient navigation services and, and now we actually, you know, um, have funding to continue this work thanks to the, to the um, Lewis Sebring Family Foundation. As Dr. Thomas explained previously, diabetes technology is a big part of Equity T1D. A study was recently published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism that showed that white patients are more likely to use diabetic technology than black patients, regardless of socioeconomic status. So I asked Dr. Thomas, why do you think that racial disparities are so prevalent in the use of medical technology in particular? No, so why are racial disparities prevalent even outside of socioeconomic status? I think it's very important to, to recognize and identify that it's not, even though we, we do know that for many things, socioeconomic status and, and race are associated, but it was very important to look outside of socioeconomic status and to acknowledge that there is still a racial disparity. And why is that? And that racial disparity, so you can have people with the same kind of private you know, or commercially insured and still have there be um, a disparity in the introduction of technology. And there are some data that I um, that show that that disparity starts at the time of diagnosis for type 1 diabetes. And we cannot separate our practices in our clinics and in our hospitals from our practices in communities and cities and acknowledge that racism exists. And so there is structural racism, there is interpersonal racism, and that informs um, biases 
And so we may see um, a, a bias in that, well, maybe this person doesn't want technology. And so then there is not, not there, it's not offered because there may be an, an assumption based on, based on a bias. Well, I think that diabetes is a disease that highlights these biases because of its prevalence in minority populations. Something tells me that these biases are not at all unique to diabetes, but rather a broader issue within our healthcare system. But just to be sure, I asked Dr. Thomas, are healthcare disparities particularly prominent in diabetes in comparison to other health conditions? Why or why not? You know, I would defer to my colleagues with regard to other chronic conditions but when I think about metabolic disease, other metabolic diseases, I would say absolutely not. So we see disparities in hypertension. We see disparities, and now I can go outside of, of metabolic disease just to think about malignancies and so um, and cancer. And so we see that, um, that Black people are going to be diagnosed oftentimes um, with a, a, a malignancy that is more progressed, so at a farther stage, um, and that we also see, and this is actually data from, um, you know, looking at the south side of Chicago that I'm, that I'm trying to reference here, and so we see disparities in many chronic conditions, and I think the disparities speak, and when we go upstream, we get back to those social determinants of health, and all that that is and all that that means and what about those that access and the fact that the system um, is truly kind of including disparities, leading people down different paths based on um, these social determinants of health. In case you're not familiar with the social determinants of health, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services defines them as the conditions in the environment where people are born, live, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. One of the five social determinants of health is neighborhood. So I asked Dr. Thomas, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Does your physical location as a physician on the south side of Chicago present unique challenges or opportunities to directly improve outcomes for at-risk populations? So um, when we look at Chicago being one of the most segregated cities in the United States, and we and we think about um, you know one of those most quoted Martin Luther King Jr. quotes about segregation in the city of Chicago. Then we we have to think about that is intentional, and it continues to be intentional. So it was intentional um, when it was designed, and it continues to be intentional as people are purchasing homes. In, in 2022, and, and all that happens with regard to um, choosing who we want our neighbors to be. So does your physical location as a physician on the south side of Chicago present any challenges? I would say when it comes to improving outcomes for at-risk populations, you know, I would say our location presents an opportunity and it also has with it uh, its challenges and that even on the south side, not only do we have um, racial segregation, but we also have uh, socioeconomic uh, segregation. And so um, 
you know, in a, in a sense, it presents its, its opportunities and its challenges. And so when we think about by patient in which zip code do they currently reside on the south side of Chicago and how many places are available to them to get fresh fruits and vegetables versus another patient that might be in a different neighborhood still on the south side of Chicago, but in a different zip code and with many more options for, for fresh, fresh fruit and vegetables. So diabetes care on the south side of Chicago is certainly not easy, but as Dr. Thomas points out, with challenges comes the potential to overcome those challenges. So practicing medicine on the south side of Chicago comes with opportunities in addition to obstacles. With that, let's hear from Dr. Big. Dr. Big practices internal medicine here at the university. She's focused much of her research on mitigating healthcare disparities in Latinx populations. So the first thing I ask her is, how did you become involved in working with this population? Uh so that's a great question. You know, I think my journey in um, understanding Latinx populations really started in college through volunteer work that I did in South America and understanding really public health approaches to improve health disparities. And then as a research fellow for the Robert Johnson Clinical Scholars Program at UCLA, I started to work in different Latinx communities in the Los Angeles area. And when I came to Chicago, I realized that there was also a large Mexican-American population. Uh, I had spent some time in Bogota, Colombia as a Fulbright scholar, so uh, was able to speak the language. And I had done research in the Spanish language when I was in Colombia. So when I came to Chicago, it was sort of a natural step for me to start working in Latinx communities here in Chicago. And uh, so it's something that's probably been building for a while. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it's also, I think language ability is probably also important. I studied Spanish when I was in college and sort of kept up with it. So, so then, yeah, that's how I first started becoming involved in that community here in Chicago. As you may have guessed, given that she's on a podcast about diabetes, Dr. Baig does a lot of work with disparities in diabetes in particular. But as a doctor of internal medicine, she had countless conditions to choose from while focusing on Latinx communities. So why diabetes? Yeah, you know, so I'm a general internist, so primary care physician for adults. And within that, I take care of adults with acute problems, uh, but also many chronic conditions like high blood pressure high cholesterol, diabetes. And as I started to have conversations with community leaders here in Chicago and the Latinx communities, I realized that diabetes was something that people wanted to learn more about, that it was prevalent in the community, and maybe there were limited resources for diabetes education and self-management support. And so I think coupling my clinical work with my research work and and also my advocacy work, it seemed very natural to, to work in diabetes in this community since it was so prevalent and I had expertise in it. This prevalence that Dr. Baig mentions is a huge disparity. So let's hear more about that, but also about how the disparities extend beyond prevalence. Yeah, so diabetes is actually very prevalent in Latinx communities here in the U.S., Specifically in Mexican American communities, the prevalence is 19% uh, per the latest CDC data that came out many years ago. So 
what I'll say is that there is a range of prevalence of diabetes or rates of diabetes um, in the different Latinx Hispanic communities in the U.S. Um, so, so first, it's prevalence of diabetes. Also, I think when it comes to um, complications of diabetes, those are also higher in you know some Hispanic communities as well. Um, and I know we may be talking about this later, but I think thinking about some of the barriers to care are actually also important. So having access to insurance and a primary care physician, um, the cost of medication. Uh, there are many Latinx adults with diabetes who may consider Spanish their first language. So providing education, support, uh, in their language in Spanish is actually very important as well. And I think those are sort of some of the challenges, let's say, that impact disparities. Um, I think when we think about the problems of diabetes, even thinking about other opportunities for exercise, physical activity, um, access to fresh fruits and vegetables, um, so nutrition, those are key in the prevention of diabetes. Understanding these disparities is critical because it allows doctors like Dr. Big to understand what specific barriers patients are facing and cater their care to overcoming those barriers. Here's how Dr. Big approaches it. So I think there are some specific tenets we need to follow. I think first is engaging community members and patients in any sort of programs, right? We need to hear from the folks who are living with diabetes and uh, community lead leaders, um, people who know about local resources, because I think in any program that you're implementing, you need to know what patients want to hear. Um, you know, maybe they want education about medications, maybe education on nutrition, how to make traditional recipes, perhaps in a healthier manner, um, how to access the foods that are healthy within their locality, within their community. I think, um, providing this type of education or any programs in Spanish is actually really important as well. Um, granted, you know, some folks may be um, uh, fine speaking and reading and, and writing in English, but um, providing access to that information in Spanish is also important. So we are not, let's say, disenfranchising folks who are not um, uh, proficient in English. Um, I think working with local resources is key also. So when we're talking about encouraging physical activity among patients, among community members, well, where are the parks? Where are the, where are the opportunities for exercise? Um, when we're talking about healthy recipes, where can you get the ingredients? Um, when we're talking about affordable medications, well, where are the um, the pharmacies or the formularies or, you know, medication assistance programs uh, that are accessible to patients. Um, so I think those are probably some of the key uh, challenges and ways to um, tailor programs to the community. One way that Dr. Bake has tailored her work to better serve the Hispanic community that she focuses on is through a church-based approach to diabetes prevention and care. Let's hear more from Dr. Big about this approach and why it's been so successful. So my journey in church-based work started when I was a research fellow in Los Angeles. 
And I started working with an organization um, that actually had what they called parish nurses. So nurses, registered nurses who had office hours in local churches. And that was really to increase their visibility, uh, to provide access to care um, in between visits at, at the health center. And as I started visiting and, you know, um, really shadowing the nurses, I realized that the churches were really resourceful. Um, they were central to many communities. Uh, and so through that work and realizing what the nurses were doing, um, I started, I did my first study in hypertension, actually. So the nurses were running health fairs and checking people's blood pressures. And we wanted to see how many folks were they identifying with elevated blood pressure. And then the nurses would help get them into care or bring them back to the, during office hours and counsel them on diet and exercise and plug them into care if needed. So when I moved to Chicago, I was also interested in working with churches. I thought that the churches provided um, a place that was accessible, that was, let's say, comfortable um, and safe uh, for many folks. So, and I had read about church-based interventions in other populations across the country. And I thought, well, I think with the Latinx community, this may also be a great venue to provide health education, especially since the churches were already having health fairs, they were already having exercise groups, they have many volunteers. Um, so why not add to that? Uh, and, you know, and I think that what we found was that it did provide an accessible place for diabetes education and support, um, and, and at least in the work that I have done. Church-based interventions are just one approach that Dr. Baig has taken to reduce disparities in diabetes care. Let's hear from her about other interventions that she believes have the potential to make a difference when attempting to tackle disparities head-on. I think partnered research and program implementation is really important. So partnering with patients, partnering with community leaders, partnering with uh, local community-based organizations who can provide support to folks, um, and tailor interventions that are um, for, for the community that you're implementing the program for. Um, another sort of line of work that I have been also involved in is in working with community health centers. And community health centers really are the safety net um, of outpatient primary care uh, in, in the U.S. And, and they serve many patients who are uninsured, underinsured, many patients with chronic diseases, and so I've been able to work with a network of health centers across the Midwest um, and more recently here in Chicago in uh, addressing, first we analyzed the types of resources were available for Latinx patients. And more recently, we've been doing intervention work. Um, more recently, we've done group visit interventions where adults with diabetes come together in a group and they receive education. So that is a model that has been you know, noted in the literature. There's social support that happens, there's goal setting within the group setting. But then there's also actually a medical visit that is very focused on diabetes. So within that education group, folks are pulled out, they see a primary care provider, and that opportunity, in that visit, patients can have an exam, they can have refills done, orders placed, um, they can also get their flu shot, they can get their lab work done, um, they can get referrals to get their eyes checked. So 
it's sort of like this one-stop shop. And I think it makes sense actually for many patients because for most patients with diabetes, you're, um, there are certain processes of care that you need to have done. So getting your immunizations, getting your blood work, getting your refills, having an assessment, let's say, of your um, home finger sticks. Um, but then also there's that social support, the goal setting education piece um, that's important as well. So that's the work that we've been doing in health centers recently. And um, now we're actually looking at a virtual group visit option to see if um, that would work for patients who may not be able to come physically uh, to a health center. Um, but, and you know, more recently because of COVID and the pandemic, we're offering many even clinic visits virtually. So thinking about having group diabetes education sessions and these group visits are with um, partnered or coupled with the medical visit virtually. So those are sort of the things that we've seen and what we're um, looking at now. So if you've taken anything away from Dr. Thomas and Dr. Big, I hope it's that there are things we can be doing. There's no magic solution or cure to healthcare disparities, but just because it's such a large and daunting problem does not mean that there's nothing to be done. Dr. Big and Dr. Thomas both presented concrete ways that they're working to improve inequity in diabetes care, and they're certainly not the only ones working on these problems. It wouldn't be possible for me to interview every single doctor at Kofler, but I guarantee that this topic is one that each and every one of them are forced to think about every single day in order to do their jobs effectively. For this reason, it's something we'll hear more about in episodes to come, because realistically, it's just not possible to talk about most of the topics we're discussing in this series without acknowledging the access barriers that are so prevalent in this field. Next week, we'll be digging into one of the interventions that both doctors mentioned today, diabetes education. We'll be talking to several certified diabetes care and education specialists about what exactly diabetes care and education is, what it looks like in practice, and why it's so important. So thanks for tuning in today, and I hope to see you next time on Digging Into Diabetes.